Romans chapter 3. Okay, so we've just finished up with Easter, right? And before we move on to kind of another topic, another series, what I want us to do is spend four weeks looking at what's true in the lives of Christians because of Easter. So because of the cross, because of the resurrection, what's true in our lives? What do we have? What are the, what are the gifts of the cross that we have because of what Jesus has done? And together, today we're going to look at what God has provided, his provision of righteousness before God. Now, I know it's kind of a churchy word, but we're going to explain what that means as we go along. So let's, let's read together in Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned, And fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let's pray again. Our Father, we are so grateful for Jesus, and we want to know more and more all that he has done for us. We want to go deeper into his love. We want to go deeper into his provision. We want to go deeper into his grace, and we know that the way we do that is through your word. And so I pray, Father, this morning that you would speak, that you would speak to us about your Son and that we would trust in him with all of our hearts. And I pray it in his name. Amen. Okay, well, I, if, you, if you know me, I don't think it'll surprise you to know that I was a fairly straight-laced kid. I didn't really have a rebellious phase. I was a straight-laced kid. I, I worked hard at school. I always did my homework. I never skipped my classes. If I was out late, I always called my parents to tell them where I was so they wouldn't worry about me. I, I was the kid that your parents wanted you to be friends with. And you didn't want to, right? Because nope, that kid's no fun. I was, I was a straight-laced kid, and I tell you that to illustrate how unlikely it was that I would be pulled over by three police cars early in the morning or possibly late, late at night the summer before I went to university. So uh, it, was, it was towards the end of the summer. My friend group was disbanding. We were kind of going off to our universities, and we decided as teenage boys are wont to do, that we were going to kind of go out with a bang by toilet papering someone's house, right? You guys, is this, is this a universal kind of vandalism or a distinctly American? I don't know. You take a huge, like, bulk-sized pack of toilet paper, go to someone's house, and you just throw these rolls through their trees, over their roof, just make a, a, an enormous mess. If you're lucky, it'll rain And then it'll just be, you can't clean it up, right? So we decided we're going to toilet paper somebody's house. That's how we're going to do our big end of high school. So we took took my parents' van, because we we could all fit in that, and we we parked. This is like 3 in the morning. It was ridiculous. We parked, and we cut through the city park, 
so that nobody would see our car in front of the house while we were doing this. We, we did what we came to do, cut back through the park, got in the car, and this is where we went wrong. We decided that we would drive by the house with the sliding door open and, and a guy with a camcorder, this is before camera phones, a camcorder videotaping all that we had done so we could have like a memento of this, you know, this toilet paper that we'd done. So here we are, we're driving by this house, sliding door open in the van, teenage boy hanging out with camcorder, and around the, around the corner in front of us comes a police cruiser. And obviously just like pulls right in behind us. We decide to act, let's just pretend like nothing happened. We're just going to drive exactly the speed limit towards my house. Another police car comes in behind that. Another police car comes in behind that. These three police cars all turn their sirens on, pull us over in a church parking lot of all places, block the car in at the entrance, get us out of the car. And it turns out what they were looking for, they were looking for people who were knocking over mailboxes with baseball bats, which we weren't doing. So it was sort of mistaken identity. But once they realized what we were doing, they were going to give us all tickets for being in a city park after dark, which is against the law, as we well knew. And so here I was, good student, church kid, three lights, three cars, lights blazing, waiting to get a ticket for something that I knew I had done wrong. I knew that I deserved it. The ticket was a just punishment. I broke the law. And I had, I had no excuse and I had no way out of it. Have you ever been in that place? You've been caught cheating on a test or lying to someone you love or, or calling in sick when you weren't really sick. You got caught doing it and you knew in that moment that you were guilty and that whatever punishment that was coming to you, you knew you deserved. You have no excuse and no escape. In the first three chapters of Paul's letter to the Romans, Paul was trying to put his first readers in that place. He wanted them to understand that there was a, a guilty, a guilt in their life. There was a charge against them, not in an earthly courtroom, but in the courtroom of heaven, and that the charge was true. It was just that they were guilty as charged. They had no excuse that would exempt them from the penalty for their crime. He wanted to persuade them that they lacked righteousness before God. Not in order to just make them feel bad, not in order to beat them down, but in order that they would seek righteousness somewhere else. Not in themselves, but in God. And so that's what we want to look at in this passage. In this passage, we're going to see why we need righteousness, how we receive it, and how God achieved it. So first, why we need it. We are all guilty before God without excuse and without escape. And that, that's not exactly a cheery starting point this morning, but Paul wants to make sure we understand the bad news first so we can see how good the good news is. So look at verse 19 of chapter 3. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. So Paul says that, that God gave the law. He gave all the Old Testament instruction about how we should live. He gave it so that every mouth would be stopped. What does that mean? It means so that, that no one could say that they're good enough for God. No one could, no one could say that they deserve life with him. Okay, that'll, that'll make more sense if you imagine a scene with me. So the language of this passage is the language of a courtroom, all right? So you just, you have to imagine yourself in a courtroom and you're in the dock, okay? You're on trial and the charge is read against you and the charge is that this person is accused of unrighteousness. 
He has fallen short of God's standard. And in the language of verse 23, he has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He was made to reflect the glory and the holiness of God, and he hasn't. That's the charge. And, and here's the penalty it carries. If guilty, this charge carries a penalty of death, of eternal separation from the love and the goodness of God. Now, suppose you were in that spot. What defense would you make? Would you say, well, I'm not perfect, but I'm, I'm a good person, pretty good. I'm, I'm better than most people. Well, I'm better than some people. I'm faithful to my spouse. I don't steal from my employer. I, I've passed up promotions so I could spend more time with my kids. I go to church more than half the time. Sometimes I read the Bible when no one even tells me to. I give 10% of my income away. Is that what you'd say? When you think about, if you think about someday standing before God, is the defense you think you'd make based on being pretty good? God gave the law to put an end to that, to stop every mouth that would argue that on my own, I'm righteous before God. Just, that's why he gave the law, because just think about what the law demands, right? Jesus summarized the law. He said, the, the essence of the law is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So what does that mean? It means that God can have no rivals in your heart. That, that never, not for a moment, can anything capture your imagination, your excitement, your love, your devotion more than God himself. Your job can never come first. Your family can never come first. Travel, experiences, nothing can be important to, more important to you than God. He's got to have your whole heart. And the law demands that you treat every person the way you want to be treated. So it means that that you've always treated your parents the way you demand that your kids treat you. It means that you've never, even for a moment, murdered someone in your heart by being angry or bitter. Or you've never, for a moment, committed adultery in your heart by desiring someone who's not your spouse. Have you done that? Have you, have you ever shaded the truth to your own advantage? Ever. That's what the law demands. God's law stops every defense. So when we stop comparing ourselves to other people and we compare ourselves to God's standard, we realize, I haven't done this. I haven't lived this way. I'm not as bad as I could be. I'm not as bad as some people are, but I'm not what I need to be. I'm not righteous. Maybe you'd say, well, that's fine. That's fine. That's fine for Christians. That's fine for religious people. You guys read the Bible. You know what the law says. You, you understand what's expected of you. How can this apply to me when I've, I've never heard any of this stuff before. So Francis Schaeffer was a writer in the late 20th century, and he gave this thought experiment. Okay, so you have to imagine. Imagine that every child, when they're born, imagine you, when you're born, has a, a tape recorder tied around your neck, okay? He said tape recorder because it was the late, 19th, late 20th century. You have a tape recorder hung around your neck, and it only records the moral judgments you make of other people. So every time you say... I can't believe he lied to me. That's terrible. Or every time you say, how can, I would never talk about my kids the way she talks about her kids. Or how can he justify spending that much money on a car when there are children going hungry? Every time you make a moral judgment of somebody else, it goes on the recorder, right? Every time you give an instruction to your child. 
If you wronged your brother, you need to ask his forgiveness, right? You must speak respectfully to your teacher, even when she's not here. It just all goes on the recorder. And then imagine that on the day of judgment, the day you stand before God, all he does is he plays the tape and judges you according to the standard you use in judging everyone else. Not according to his law, but just according to what you yourself know to be right. Is there anyone who could live up to even that standard? Just the standard of their own conscience, much less God's commands. God didn't give us the commands of Scripture so we could avoid guilt, but so we could see our guilt. It's not a ladder to climb our way to righteousness. It's a mirror in which we can see that we lack it. And this is what he says in verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Right? So in the courtroom, there are only two outcomes, right? You're innocent or you're guilty. You're justified, you're righteous, or you're condemned. And Paul says you can never be justified before God through the law. You can never be declared innocent before God through the law because Everyone has fallen short of it. That's not what the law is for. It doesn't teach you how to be perfect. It shows you that you're not, so that you'll seek righteousness a different way. Apart from the work of God, the whole world stands guilty before a holy God. And for some of you, this sermon is just confirming all the things you were afraid of when you came to church. Like, I'm going to go to church, and they're just going to make me feel bad about everything I'm doing. Some of you brought friends here this morning, and you're thinking, I cannot believe this is what he's talking about today. So listen, okay? A few weeks ago, uh, my wife Kim was feeling unwell, and uh, so we kind of went back and forth all day. She had stomach pain, low fever. Should we go to the doctor? Should we wait? We end up going to the clinic, and the clinic sends us to an ultrasound, and the ultrasound tech confirms that her appendix is about to burst. So we, we get in the car, we go to A&E, we get in for emergency surgery, what we didn't say when the doctor came in and told us that Kim had acute appendicitis was, doctors, it's, you're always this way. I, knew, I just knew that you would have bad news for us. I just, I wish that we had stayed home. Right? No, we said, oh my gosh, thank you so much. I'm so glad we came. What do we need to do, right? We were so glad to have the diagnosis so that we could seek the cure. And the reason why God gives us a diagnosis of our guilt is because he's, he, there's something he wants to do with our guilt. There's something he has done about our guilt, but we're not going to seek it until we see how sick we are. So we need righteousness because we're guilty. Now let's see, secondly, how we receive it. God freely gives his righteousness to everyone who trusts Jesus. So if you really get that first point, then verse 21 comes in like light piercing the darkness. Paul says, but now. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So Paul just told us you can never have righteousness through the law. You can't be good enough. You can't do the rules well enough. But now God has revealed a righteousness that doesn't come through the law. It doesn't come by what you do. It comes to everyone who believes in Jesus. And he goes on, look at verse 23, or the end of verse 22. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. 
So remember, justified is a verdict in a courtroom, right? It means innocent, righteous, free to go. And Paul says, you can be a sinner, you can fall short of the glory of God, and God can justify you. He can call you righteous. He can declare over you innocent, not guilty of all charges, free to go, perfectly righteousness. Justification is not a process, okay? This passage does not say you're all guilty and God can make you better. That's true, but that's not what it says. It says you're guilty and God can call you righteous. He can declare that you are perfectly righteous. Righteous, he says it two times in verses 21 and 22. Righteous with the righteousness of God. Perfect righteousness. It's not a process. It happens at a moment in time. One moment, you are guilty and condemned before God, and then you trust in Jesus, and the next moment, you are declared righteous and just before him. And you say, can that really be? Can it really be that all my past, all my sins, all my shame can just be done away with? God can look at all that and still call me righteous. Yes. That's what Paul means. So you say, how can I get that? Well, you receive it like a gift. How do you, how do you receive a gift, right? You have a birthday party and someone brings you a bottle of wine or a necklace or if you're lucky like me, a book. What do you, what do you say? You, you take the gift and you say, this is so thoughtful, thank you. How much do I owe you? you don't, if it's a gift, there's no payment in return. You just receive it. You receive it like a gift. And that's what Paul says, this is like. We receive justification by faith, by believing. Look at verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. He says it twice. It's, it's for everyone who has faith, and it's only those who have faith. It's for those who believe. Faith is just receiving the gift. It's turning the eyes of your heart to God, holding out your empty hands to him and saying, what you require, I don't have. I can never be what you demand that I be. I can only receive it from you. The only way for me to be righteous is if you do it so you hold out your empty hands and you receive it as a gift through faith in Jesus. Does that sound too easy? Would it help to see that this is, this is always the way that God has dealt with his people? So earlier this year, we did a series in Genesis, right? You may remember we did this uh, in Genesis 15. God makes a covenant with Abraham. And he says to Abraham, Abraham who has no children, he says, you're going to be the father of a great nation, of all my people. He gives him this promise, and Genesis 15 tells us, and Abraham believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. That's Genesis. That's the first book of the Bible, and this is already how God is dealing with his people. They trust his promise, and he calls them righteous. Or take David, who was a pretty good king when he wasn't taking multiple wives, committing adultery, committing murder to cover his adultery, neglecting his children, leaving them on their own so long until one child kills another child, right? David had a pretty spotty record. If David were to stand in God's courtroom, what do you think his verdict would be? And yet this is what David says in Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. 
I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. David didn't make up for his sins. He didn't turn over a new life and, and, and earn a good record. He confessed to God, and God covered his sin with righteousness. And what happened to Abraham and what happened to David can happen to you. We are justified by faith. So what do you think? Does it sound too easy? Maybe you wonder, if it's really that easy, if it's really that free, then, then what's stopping us from living however we want to live? I mean, if God, if we already know that the verdict over our life is righteous, if we're already free from condemnation, what motivation could there be to live a good life? Or maybe something else is bothering you. Because if a human judge did this, it would be an outrage. If a human judge looked at someone, saw conclusive proof of their guilt, and said, not guilty, we'd be out picketing in the streets. We'd want that guy pulled from his job, right? How is it okay for God to do this? If God calls sinners righteous, how is God just? So we've seen the need for righteousness. We've seen how we receive it. And now we need to see how God achieved it. He provided the gift at the cost of his son's life. So look at chapter 3, verse 23 again. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So justification is free for us but it wasn't free for God. The gift came through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So what does it mean to redeem someone? What does it mean to ransom someone? It's the same word. It means to pay the price to set them free. It says that, that God paid the price to set us free. And what was the price? It says in verse 25 that God put Jesus forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now, propitiation is not a word we use but let me explain to you what it means. So in the, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, and then it was translated into Greek, and the Greek word that was used in that translation is the same word here, and it was used for something called the mercy seat, okay? So let me, let me tell you what the mercy seat is. In the innermost part of the temple, the most holy place, the holy of holies, in the innermost part of the temple was the Ark of the Covenant, Right? It's a gold box with cherubim on top. It contains the tablets that have the Ten Commandments. If you've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, this is, what, this is what Indiana Jones is trying to rescue from the Nazis. So the Ark of the Covenant is in the, in the Holy of Holies, and the top of the Ark of the Covenant is called the Mercy Seat. And the reason why it's called that is because God's presence, his holy presence, would appear over the Ark in a cloud. And it would be as though God was sitting on his throne. This, the most holy place was the, is the place where the presence of God dwelt. And only one person could go in there, and only once a year on the Day of Atonement. So the high priest on the Day of Atonement would sacrifice a bull and take the blood of the bull, which was for the atonement of the sins of the people, take the blood into the most holy place and sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. Because it's called the mercy seat, because that's where God's people found mercy. So he would, he would make the sacrifice, offer the blood, and, and he would make atonement. And a, a holy God could dwell in the midst of a sinful people for another year. 
So a propitiation is a sacrifice that turns away wrath. It turns away God's judgment by satisfying it. A substitute dies in the place of the people, and the people are forgiven. Okay, that's what a propitiation is. And Paul is saying, that's what Jesus did. He's the ultimate propitiation. He turns away God's judgment by satisfying it. He's the blood that turns God from against us to for us, that turns God's opposition to his favor. Not just for a year, but for all time. And not just for one nation, but for everyone who believes. So who paid the price for your free justification? God paid the price. He put forward his son as a sacrifice to make atonement for the sins of the world. Can you see how much God loves you? If the greatness of someone's love is measured by the costliness of their gift, can you see how much God loves you? He put forward his son. Can you see how much Jesus loves you who laid down his life willingly? He paid it all so that justification could be a free gift to you. And it's more than a gift, isn't it? It's an exchange, right? Jesus takes something in order to give something. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin. That's Jesus. He made Jesus to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus takes on himself our record of sin. Every way we've fallen short, everything we've done, everything we're ashamed of, he takes it on himself and he serves the death sentence it deserves and he gives us righteousness. His own spotless perfect record of obedience. And we go free. And Paul tells us in verses 25 and 26 of Romans chapter 3 that this is how God can call sinners righteous and not be an unjust judge. Because God didn't let sin go unpunished. It was punished. The death sentence was served, but not by us. By a substitute. By God's Son. So that God is still just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Do you believe this? That everyone who trusts in Jesus is clothed in his perfect righteousness before God. Christian, you will never be condemned for your sin. Ever. If you know this, then when your heart condemns you because you slipped up and you looked at something on the internet that you shouldn't have, or because you yelled at your kids in the car on the way to church, or because you haven't opened your Bible since the sermon last Sunday, when your heart condemns you and says, how can you call yourself a Christian? When you fall so far short, you can say, everything you say could have once condemned me, but now I am righteous in Christ because of what he did. Or when Satan comes to you and says, maybe God does forgive some people and give them eternal life, but not people who have done what you have done, not people who have in their past what you have in your past, you can say, it's true that I don't deserve forgiveness and eternal life, but now, because of Jesus, I have the love of God and eternal life that you can never take from me. You can look your failures in the eye and be sorry for them, but not condemned by them. You can face death fearlessly because you already know that when you stand before God, the verdict over your life is going to be righteous. 
Didn't we sing that last week on Easter? No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. Your confidence in God's love and acceptance, it's not going to rise on weeks when you do really well and then fall apart on weeks when you haven't done what you should. You'll know that you're loved and accepted because of what Jesus did, not because of your performance. Is that too easy? If people have no fear of condemnation, are they just going to live however they want? How could they? How can you look into this kind of love and not love God in return? One of my favorite hymns is And Can It Be by Charles Wesley. And listen to what he says. This is about his own conversion. He says, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and did whatever I wanted because now I'm free. I can do whatever I want. I don't have to love God. Is that what he says? I rose, went forth, and followed thee. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. He says, when I saw what God had done to set me free and make me righteous, I didn't go away. I drew near. I drew near to the throne of grace. I boldly approached the throne. I want to be where he is. Everyone who's justified can call a holy God father. You can boldly approach his throne. He welcomes you with joyful love. If you see that, you won't want to walk away. You want to follow him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we marvel at what you did to make us righteous. That you lived, you left heaven, which was perfect. And you came to earth to suffer. And you lived a perfect life. You, at every moment, loved God most. At every moment, loved your neighbor as yourself. You did everything God requires. And then you took the death sentence we deserve so we could have your record. So we could stand spotless before God. So we could have confidence in his presence. So we could know that we will never be condemned. So we can know that death for us just leads into eternal life. So we could be free from fear and free from condemnation, free from dread of a holy God. Thank you. Lord Jesus, thank you. And help us to live for you. In your name, amen.